A quick note about this week's podcast episode. This is actually a replay of episode 82 from back in February of 2020, the episode with Dr. Don Huebner about anxiety and strategies to help our kids through anxiety. This is actually the most popular, most downloaded episode of the Parenting ADHD podcast of all time. And so I thought it would be great to bring it back to the forefront. If you've heard it before, I'm sure it would be helpful to listen again. And if you haven't, now is a great time. This is a fantastic conversation with Dr. Hebner, who is an expert in anxiety and the author of Outsmarting Worry. So I hope that you will tune in and learn from her on this episode. So if a smoke detector detects smoke, it's going to set off an alarm. And whether the smoke comes from a house fire, which is really dangerous, or a piece of toast that's burning in your toaster, which is not so dangerous, the same alarm gets set off. That happens in our brains as well. We have the same alarm, meaning the same feeling of imminent danger and the same feeling of fear related to a real danger versus something that's not actually dangerous. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I am thrilled today to be talking to Dr. Don Hebner about anxiety. We're going to talk all about anxiety in younger children and middle school age children and really cover a lot of strategies to help you, to help your anxious child, and even to really understand them, understand what their behavior might be signaling in terms of anxiety. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hebner. Will you start by introducing yourself to the audience? Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Dr. Dawn Hebner. I'm a clinical psychologist based in Exeter, New Hampshire. In therapy, I work exclusively with anxious children ages 12 and under and their parents. And I also do parent coaching. And then I'm also the author of a number of books for children that teach kids specific strategies to help them better manage a range of feelings, including anxiety. Yeah, you have some great children's books to read with our kids who are anxious as well. Thank you. Great work. Let's dive in, I think, by talking about what is anxiety? What comes to the level of more than just kind of this daily stress or some typical anxious topics or fears that kids have? What brings us beyond that to actual clinical anxiety? Yeah, so it's a good question because we use language kind of loosely. We talk about anxiety and nervousness and fear and worry, and those are all normal feelings. So the question about when it rises to the level of needing attention is a really good one. And the answer to that is basically when it's getting in the way. Right. So when a child's uncertainty, discomfort, nervousness, fear rises to the level that it's interfering with things that they used to be able to do or that other kids their age do, then it's a problem and needs attention. And what might that look like for parents and caregivers? What are some signals that 
our kids are really struggling with anxiety? So anxiety is basically an alert that happens to us internally that is telling us that we might be facing danger. So we get Mm -hmm. kind of a signal that goes off in our brains around potential danger or potential problems. And the word potential is an important one and danger is really broadly defined. Anxiety sets off the fight or flight response, which we've all heard about, right? So what parents see is related to fight, flight, or there's actually a third part, freeze. So most commonly, we're aware of the flight part, and that looks like avoidance. Mm -hmm. So kids who aren't willing to navigate their house alone, you know, go to different parts of the house by themselves or sleep alone or kids that have trouble separating from parents to go to school, or kids who don't want to take part in activities. All that avoidance is the flight part of fight or flight. But we also see the fight with some kids, and that is when kids feel afraid and they feel threatened in some way, and they come out kind of swinging. You know, they get argumentative or angry. You know, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. But that can still be a sign of anxiety. Anxiety is at the base of that often. Right. And I think that that's not typically the first thing that parents think of when they have an argumentative, angry kid. Right. So I love to make that point because so often it really can be a symptom of that. Right. Yes. And then the freezing so freezing is is really what it sounds like. It's, you know, kind of deer in a headlights, kids just losing their ability to say what they're thinking or feeling or to move into a situation. In the extreme form of that, you might see something like selective mutism where kids literally are not able to speak in mm-hmm. situations where they feel unsure of themselves or uncomfortable in some way. And in the less extreme form, it's just kids getting kind of paralyzed in the face of anxiety and uncertainty. And I've brought up uncertainty a couple of times because uncertainty is very much a part of anxiety, right? So anxiety often has to do with the fear of things that might happen or could happen. And when kids find themselves feeling not sure about how something is going to go, that often sets off this phenomena, this anxiety. Right. Do you see a lack of self-confidence sometimes as a signal of potential anxiety? Yeah, it can be. So confidence is very much related to competence. So, you know, when kids feel competent and able to handle challenges, they feel more confident. And one of the things that happens with anxiety is that kids begin to feel, they, they sort of underestimate their own ability to cope. So they start to think that if a bad thing happens, it's going to completely, you know, kind of take over and there's nothing that they're going to be able to do about it. And that's really kind of an underestimation of their own competence, their own abilities, but that goes along with anxiety. Yeah, I see that in my college-age daughter who has some pretty significant anxiety, the attitude of, I can't, I can't, I can't, right? which is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if that's your attitude about things. And we catch her closing off and just not even trying stuff. And so that's been a battle to help her to push herself through that discomfort and that potential. Right. Because often it doesn't go bad. Often it's just fine. That's right. It's that cognitive distortion 
And I think so many of the cognitive distortions come with anxiety. Yes, that's true. So there are three very typical cognitive distortions that go along with anxiety. One is misinterpreting likelihood. So thinking that if a bad thing could happen, it will happen. Mm-hmm. And there is misinterpreting or making mistakes about magnitude. So making an, an assumption that the bad thing's going to be catastrophic. And then the third is underestimating your ability to cope, which we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say something else about kids who are sure that they're not going to be able to handle something that comes. You know, part of what parents often feel the impulse to do when their kids are lacking confidence is to essentially cheerlead, you know, to tell their kids you can do it. And any parent who has tried to do that knows that it doesn't work, right? So it feels invalidating to kids to have Mm -hmm. parents just say, of course you can do that. And what we need to do instead is help kids to understand that this is part of anxiety. It's a cognitive distortion, which we can get even young kids to understand by calling it something other than a cognitive distortion. We can say it's a thinking mistake or your brain is tricking you or your worry is tricking you. But we want kids to be able to begin to get a little bit of distance from their thoughts so that they can question what they're thinking and what they're feeling and to recognize that some of their thoughts aren't accurate and aren't helpful to them. Yeah, that is such a good point. I think there are mistakes that we make as parents. And, you know, interestingly enough, I have anxiety myself and I really get it. And I still find myself being that cheerleader sometimes for my daughter or my son in anxious moments. And I have to really be mindful and catch myself and say, okay, you know, this isn't helpful. You've been there. You know, let's try to take a different approach. What other mistakes do you see parents making when it comes to anxious kids? So the single most common mistake that parents make is to overly accommodate the anxiety. Mm. There was an interesting study that was done recently looking at the parents of anxious children, and it found that 97% of parents of anxious children accommodate the anxiety, meaning that they change what they're doing or saying in an attempt to reduce their child's anxiety. And parents do that coming from a place of love, right? You see Mm -hmm. your child is Mm -hmm. suffering. You don't want your child to suffer. And so you try to smooth the way or you help them avoid the thing that they're afraid of, or you add lots of extra reassurance or supports. So it comes from an absolutely well-intentioned place. And it's one of the most problematic things parents do. And the Mm. reason that it's so problematic is that it locks anxiety in place. So Uh. when a parent accommodates anxiety, and and I'm just going to give a more specific example so it's clear what we're talking about. So let's say there's a child who has become really nervous about pickup at the end of the school day. And Mm -hmm. they have the fear that maybe the parent isn't going to be there. Um, or isn't going to be there at time on time. And so the child checks with their parents every day before school. Are you going to be there? When are you going to be there? Where are you going to be beforehand so that mm-hmm. I'm sure that you're going to be there, right? And accommodation yes. is answering all those questions. And the reason that's a problem is that when you answer the questions, you provide that reassurance, It helps the child feel better right in the moment. It reduces the anxiety. 
but it makes the child utterly dependent on having you answer that question again every time their anxious thought occurs to them again. So it keeps a child really locked into continuing to get that reassurance. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So, you know, it provides relief in the moment and it makes the problem worse in the long run. And what we need to do instead begins with externalizing anxiety, which is helping children to conceptualize their worry like it's a little creature, you know, like a little beast of some sort that is separate from them. And that little worry creature comes along and it pulls the danger alarm in their brain and it tries to trick them or it tries to scare them about things that are not actually dangerous to them. And every time the child jumps in response to that worry and obeys it, that externalized worry, it's like it's feeding the worry. It's strengthening the worry. And so what kids need to do instead is to learn how to question this little worry creature, challenge it, disobey it. And that's something that parents can help their children do. That's such an interesting thing. And so In that example of the child who's worried that you're not going to pick them up or pick them up on time, how would you more appropriately handle that in the moment? So assuming that you have already talked to your child about imagining their worry, like it's this little creature, this little pest that comes along and tries to scare them or tries to trick them, you might say to them, it sounds like worry's pulling your alarm, or it sounds like that's, you know, Mr. Worry who's trying to scare you. And then a parent can either say, let's talk back to that worry, helping a child to say to themselves, like, you know, worry, you always scare me, but my mom has been there every single day after school. Or worry, I know you're trying to scare me, but I'm not listening to you, or you're not the boss of me. And it's much more effective for kids to do this kind of talking back or pushing back against their worry rather than having a parent just provide the reassurance again, because ultimately we want kids to internalize the ability to not necessarily believe what their worry is telling them to, you know, kind of question or push back against it. Yeah, to be able to navigate and cope on their own. Right. And this one's a strategy that's not just meant for little kids, right? So it, you know, it might sound like it's a little kid strategy to kind of talk back to Mr. Worry but it's a strategy that's effective even for adults to kind of personify worry. You don't have to call it Mr. Worry. Like, you know, you can come up with your own name for it, but to talk back to it or to recognize, you know, this is a little worry part of my brain that's trying to protect me, but it's actually going overboard. And I, I don't need to buy what it's saying, or I don't need to listen to it. Yeah. And what that's really doing, I think, is separating irrational fear from rational fear. Right. Right. And which is a concept really above understanding for the kids of the age that we're talking about. And what I know of anxiety and navigating myself and for my teen and young adult, that's kind of what you're doing in a way that younger kids can really grab a hold of it and understand it. And therapists that treat adults do absolutely tell them to personify their anxiety as well, which is amazing. But also, I've heard, you know, don't try to make it go away. Understand that it's part of you or it's there. That's right. 
So in the first book that I wrote, I had recommended that kids talk back to their worry in kind of a yelling at it way, you know, go away, worry. I no longer recommend that because of what you said. If a child kind of yells at their imaginary worry and says, go away, worry, it's not as if they suddenly feel better, right? It's not as if worry complies with that. So it was turning out that when kids were yelling at their worry, they would come back and say, Dr. Hebner, that totally didn't work, right? And they were right. So instead, I'm teaching kids to say to their worry something like, you're not the boss of me, or I'm not listening to you, or I know you're trying to scare me, but you're hardly ever right. So I've kind of modified the way that I've taught kids to talk back. I want to go back. Yeah, and, and I love um, that. You touched on a moment ago about whether kids can understand the concept about a realistic versus an unrealistic worry. Mm-hmm. So I actually do a huge amount of teaching about the concepts that make the techniques work. Because I feel like if a child can understand conceptually why they need to talk back to their worry or why it's okay to disobey the worry, it helps them to then use some of those strategies. So when I'm talking to kids about the concept of realistic versus unrealistic fears, I use the example of something like a smoke detector in your kitchen, right? So if a smoke detector detects smoke, it's going to set off an alarm. And whether the smoke comes from a house fire, which is really dangerous, or a piece of toast that's burning in your toaster, which is not so dangerous, the same alarm gets set off. Mm, I love that. That happens in our brains as well. We have the same alarm, meaning the same feeling of imminent danger and the same feeling of fear related to a real danger versus something that's not actually dangerous. And so, you know, I think for kids to understand something about that helps them because the internal experience is, I feel scared. And when I feel scared, I think that there must be something dangerous to make me feel this way, right? And so we want kids to understand that they can feel that fear, even in the face of no actual danger because that's the way that our brains work. That's such a great example for kids too. And kids of all ages, I mean, even an adult, as you described that, I sat and I thought, wow, that would be a really great way when I get super anxious to remind myself that it's that alarm and to take a minute to say, what does this mean? And is it realistic? So good. I want to talk a second then about kids who really physically feel their anxiety, their heart races, their chest tightens, they might feel tingly, they might feel like they can't breathe, they feel like it's a medical emergency. Right, right. What do we do to help them? Because it's it's almost more tangible right. to them, right. and I feel like harder to push against. Right, so the first thing that's really important for parents and caregivers is to know that these are legitimate, actual physical sensations. So when a child says, my stomach's hurting, they're not making that up, right? And often when a child says, my stomach hurts, and a parent says, you're just worried, that doesn't fly, right? Because the child's experience is, wait a minute, my stomach actually hurts. And they're right, it does actually hurt, right? Or if a child says, I can't breathe, or, you know, my heart is racing or whatever, those things are actually happening. And so there are two things that are helpful. One is to 
apart from the time that it's happening, help kids to understand why our bodies do those things. So that's part of the fight or flight response. When, when an alarm goes off in our brains, our body springs into action, preparing us to protect ourselves. And it does that by increasing our heart rate, sending more blood to our arms and legs in case we have to run away or in case we have to fight off a danger. And when those changes happen, our heart rate goes up, our stomach starts to feel kind of flippy because um, we're not digesting anymore. Instead, our muscles are getting fueled. So all of those physical sensations kids feel happen because a danger alarm has gotten triggered. They're not right. dangerous in and of themselves, even though they feel scary and uncomfortable. It's also important for parents and kids to develop an understanding that when that fight or flight response has gotten triggered and those kinds of physiological changes start to happen, the logical thinking part of the brain goes offline. So it becomes really difficult to think in clear ways to use a skill set that you've been taught, to think logically. It becomes nearly impossible to do that because the thinking part of our brain shuts down in response to the fight or flight response. Yeah. That's where something like breathing or mindfulness exercises come in because that helps to kind of quiet that process down and get the thinking brain back on. So breathing isn't an end unto itself. It's something that we can coach our children to do to try to quiet the internal alarm to get them to the point that they can be more responsive to the coaching that we as adults are trying to do with kids when they're in anxious moments. Yes, I remember when I learned about amygdala hijack and the fact that it kind of blocks the thinking brain, the frontal lobe, and how amazing that information. It was just life-changing for me as a parent with a kid who has anxiety, who also ADHD and autism and some meltdowns and me being type A and always wanting to rationalize out of these situations. And it never worked. And I couldn't understand it until I realized that physiologically, our kids cannot rationalize after they're flooded with emotion or fear. And that's so, so valuable for parents to understand that all of that talking in the world that you want to do, and, and again, from that place of a good intention and wanting to help, but it's not effective in those right, moments. Right, because you're essentially talking to a part of a child's brain that's not available, right? Right, and right. As parents do that, that gets more frustrating to both parent and child, right? You know, just like yes. kids have a danger alarm in their brain, parents have one in their brain as well, right? And when a child gets triggered, that often triggers a parent. So both are operating suboptimally, right? Yep. And then as parents try to kind of quiet the alarm or put out the fire or use logic or maybe sometimes start to threaten their children to get them to do something. Neither is really operating out of their frontal cortex at that point, out of the thinking part of their brain. And everybody needs to do a calm down activity so that the thinking part of the brain comes back online. One of the most effective ways to help kids begin to re-access their thinking brain is to empathize. Yes. 
And that's something that we sometimes kind of jump past or we do in sort of a cursory way. And then we are quick to be logical after it. Mm -hmm. Really helpful to say to a child who's panicking, I know you're scared or I know this feels hard. And to really kind of stay with that empathy without prematurely jumping ahead to, but you can do this or, but this isn't dangerous or, but we already talked about, or, you know, whatever you want to really stay with the empathy because that's part of what helps a child calm down enough to hear the rest of what you might want to say. Mm -hmm. Validating how they're feeling. I think a lot of times when we try to help and we try to rationalize, we're really sending the message that how they say they're feeling or how they're acting like they're feeling isn't valid. It isn't true or it's not appropriate. And in that moment, sending that message is only unhelpful, not helpful. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's a difference between being afraid and being in danger. So we want to validate the fear but we're not agreeing that they're in danger. Right, right. And so parents want to keep clear in their own mind, you know, we're not saying this is scary or dangerous. We're saying, I can see how scared you are, or I know you're scared, right? It's, you know, it's maybe semantics. It's a subtle distinction, but it's actually an important one. Yes. We're empathizing and acknowledging and validating the reality of what our child is feeling to help them feel Mm -hmm. connected to us, to help them to feel like I see you and I care about you. And that's part of what helps to calm the brain down to be able to then cope in some other way. Yes. I think anxiety is really wholly misunderstood for the most part, you know, from parents, from maybe teachers, other adults in a child's life, because it can look like so many other things, as we talked about early on, the avoidance or being angry or argumentative, and then also really feeling very out of scale for the reality of the situation. We often end up acting from that place instead of kind of taking a step back, taking a pause ourselves and recognizing that this is how our child feels. So often when they are conveying something that isn't totally the truth or maybe is exaggerated, they're really expressing how something feels to them. And instead of dismissing that they are somehow not acting age appropriate or something like that, just validating the feeling is immensely helpful in a wide range of applications, not just for anxiety. But, you know, that's one of the biggies for parenting is to really say, I see you. I see what's happening for you. Yes. Right. And I want to help you. Oh, so important. So let's talk a minute about externalizing anxiety and why that's really important. I think this ties some into our conversation about giving the little creature a name. Was there anything else really to talk about as far as externalizing anxiety? Yeah, it's mainly that it helps a child to get a little bit of distance from what they're thinking and feeling. And it also allows a parent to be on the same side as their child. So when you haven't externalized, it often feels to children like their parents are adversaries. Their parents are trying to make them do things that they don't want to do because they're scared. And Mm -hmm. when you externalize, you can talk about 
you know, let's not let worry be the boss of this, or I know you can be brave. It sort of helps a parent to be on the same side as their child instead of against their child. And then the externalization makes possible the other strategies. So one strategy that we touched on was talking back to worry, not yelling at it, but, you know, sort of engaging with it a little bit, saying something like, I'm not listening to you, or I don't fall for that, or you're not the boss of me, right? And then the other strategy we haven't talked about yet that is a hugely important one is to challenge what this externalized worry is telling you, to not obey it. And that technically is called exposure when you're learning to move towards a feared situation instead of away from it. And exposure is a really important part in the more effective management of anxiety or treatment of anxiety. Yeah. And that could be, you know, someone who is afraid to leave the house. If they go somewhere, something bad might happen. It's getting them out of the house, showing their brain that, yes, I can do this. I can leave the house. And it doesn't mean that every time something scary might happen or I might panic, just an easy example. Right, and for children, it might be examples like, you know, going upstairs alone when everyone else is downstairs or Mm -hmm. doing a new activity for the first time, going to a friend's house you've never been to before, answering a question at school, right? So, you know, there are lots of child-sized examples. And one of the really nice things about exposure is that it's not an all or none kind of thing. So when I'm talking to families about this, I use the analogy of getting used to the water in a pool, right? So exposure Mm. is a desensitization kind of activity, meaning that we're trying to get used to something that seems scary or, or too hard for us. And just like when we are getting used to the cold water in a pool, we can do that by either jumping in and getting used to the water all at once, or we can take steps and get used to it a little bit at a time. So when there's a situation that feels scary and overwhelming to a child, they can have a choice between doing a jump in method, like, you know, kind of throw themselves into the situation all at once, or taking steps, which is approaching a situation a little bit at a time. And both of those are perfectly valid ways to accomplish exposure. And both will move a child towards being able to manage situations, to kind of move outside their comfort zone and ultimately get on top of whatever it is that they're afraid of. Yeah. And I like that you give them the option. Mm -hmm. You can jump in or you can take these tiny little steps. I think what works is different for each kid. And if it's their choice... That's always helpful. That's empowering for kids. Yeah. What's important if they're taking steps is to make the steps progressive, right? So Mm -hmm. not to take one step and to stay there forever. I talk to kids a lot about we're trying to do medium-sized challenges, right? So not things that are super easy, that don't evoke any fear at all, but we also want things that make you feel terrified, So we want that kind of medium range. And even young kids are pretty good at, you know, being able to distinguish between something that's so easy that it's not scary at all. And we don't want kids to do it at that level because they're not benefiting. Like there's no, there's no gain. There's no progress if we're Mm -hmm. only doing medium things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such good points because we do have to find how much to push in order to challenge for growth or progress, but not so much that we break them, you know, that we 
really are starting to do more harm than good. Right. And again, empowering kids, like giving them some choice Mm -hmm. or helping them to see that they can be brave and they can take on challenges is a really important part of this. So, you know, let's say there's a child that is afraid to sign up for some new activity because a parent isn't going to stay. It's not really a success if the parent just forces the child to go and the child is, you know, angry and feeling uncared about and they go because they have to go. There's nothing that's really accomplished by that. If instead a parent maybe works out with their child, okay, the first time you go, I'll stay. And then, you know, the next step might be I'll stay, but I'm going to be out of view. And the next step might be I'll stay, but I'm going to be in the parking lot. And it's important for kids to know that they're challenging their anxiety. You know, this is something that we're sort of doing together. It's not something that a parent is doing to their child. Right. Yeah. And there's a big distinction there. That's true. Yes. And empowering kids is always the best way. I feel like that's, that should be our goal as parents is empowering our kids. Yes. Before we close, are there any other strategies for parents of anxious kids, things that can realistically be beneficial? Yeah. So I often have kids tell me that when they feel anxious, they just try to ignore it or they try to you know get themselves busy. And that's a strategy with limited utility because what often happens is then at night when things get quiet, it all comes flooding back to them, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what I do instead is I talk to kids about how their brain is essentially like a television set and they can decide that they're going to change the channel. So like if, you know, the worry channel is playing, they can decide that they're going to change the channel. But before they change the channel, it's important to label what's going on. So to say something like, that's my worry talking to me, I don't need to listen to that, and then to shift over to something else. So it's kind of like you're recognizing, okay, worry is here trying to bother me right now, and you're kind of affirming for yourself, I'm not going to have this be my focus, or I'm not going to let this sweep me away. And then you turn your attention, which is different from just pretending that you don't hear the worry. Right. Right. It's different than distraction. It's like intentional distraction or intentional changing of the channel. Yeah. That's a great idea. And you have so many amazing analogies that really help us to visualize what's happening and to help our kids through it in a way that works for them. I love that. For everybody listening, you can go to the show notes and get links to Dr. Hebner, her books, anything that we've discussed here in this episode, you can access that at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 082 for episode 82. And I thank you so much, Dr. Hebner, for sharing a little bit of your time and your wisdom to help parents who are trying to help their anxious kids. Thank you for inviting me. And with that, we'll end this episode. I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.